Thanks, Matt. In 2013, Time Magazine, which is a secular magazine, of course, did a, a series, a study, using a complex algorithm to try to determine who is the figure, the historical figure of all time, the most significant historical figure. You know, they always have Time Magazine's Man or Woman of the Year. Well, they wanted to find out who was the person of all time. Well, in the midst of this algorithm, after surveying uh, numerous historians and also doing a research on how often a certain particular figure in history has been uh, discussed or written about, they boldly declare that Jesus is the most significant figure of all time. Time Magazine, a secular magazine, saw that very clearly. Jesus is the most significant figure of all time. Presbyterian minister and best-selling author has written a wonderful book called Who Is This Man? If you have a, a friend who maybe is wondering about Jesus and maybe his impact on, on history, this is a great book to, to give to them. And he begins his book, Who Is This Man? with this sentence. On the day after Jesus' death, it looked as if whatever small mark he left on the world would rapidly disappear. Instead, his impact on human history has been unparalleled. He goes on to write, Jesus' impact was greater a hundred years after his death than during his life. It was greater still after 500 years. After a thousand years, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. After 2,000 years, he has more followers in more places than ever. This is truly remarkable when we consider the fact that Jesus only lived 33 years and he was the son of a carpenter living in a small town in ancient Palestine in Nazareth in the first century. And that his public ministry was only three years long when he traveled around as a homeless itinerant preacher. Yet in those three years, Jesus was able to change the world. So who is this man named Jesus exactly? Some people like to say, well, he was a great moral teacher. Others will even say that he was a, a prophet, a, a religious figure. But this sermon series, we want to look at not what others have to say about Jesus, but what does Jesus himself have to say about himself? Who is this man? What did Jesus have to say about himself? We're going to do this by looking at the seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. If you were with us last year, you know that we began looking at the Gospel of John in, in January, and we looked at the seven signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John, signs that point to his, his divinity. And if you didn't get to see those sermons, you can certainly go online and check them out. But last year, we pointed out that John's gospel is the, was the last gospel written. Mark, Matthew, and Luke wrote their gospels before John's gospel. So John knew about their gospels, and so he writes, as Paul Harvey would like to say, the rest of the story. John wants to make sure that we know who Jesus is by highlighting these seven I am statements that don't appear in the other gospels. They're only in the gospel of John. But they're so important, John wanted to make sure we didn't miss them. That's why he writes to us about them so that we might understand who Jesus is and what he said about himself and how what Jesus has to say about himself ultimately changes everything for you and me today, please open your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. It may be found on page 1134. John, chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as he pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the Apostle John, whom you loved, who took the time to put pen to paper so that we might have the story of Jesus, these wonderful I am statements of who Jesus said he was. And now, Lord, as we look at this first I am statement as it comes to us in the Gospel of John, I pray that you might open our eyes to see what you want us to see, open our ears to hear what you want us to hear, and open our hearts that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. John chapter six, beginning with verse 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I want to pause there just for a moment to put this scripture in its greater uh, context. If you read all of John 6, you'll see that in the very beginning of John 6, uh, Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with just five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, He's been teaching to the crowds, of course, as you know, the story goes, and and Jesus tells his disciples to feed the crowd, and they're like, well, we don't have that kind of money. Where could we find the money? And and one of them stands up and says, well, we've got this little boy's lunch, five barley loaves and just two fish. And Jesus says, well, we'll feed him with this. And he begins to break it. And miraculously, these people are fed with the five barley loaves and two fish. In fact, scholars tell us that most likely there were more than 5,000 people. That's just the men. Probably were closer to 15,000 people that day in the field listening to Jesus teach when he fed the 5,000 or fed 15,000 with just five barley loaves and two fish. After doing this amazing miracle, his disciples get into a boat and and begin to row across the Sea of Galilee. And as you continue to read the Gospel of John in chapter 6, you'll see that, well, they have a hard way making it. And then Jesus walks on water to help his disciples get to the other side. It's It's an amazing sign, an amazing miracle that we find in John 6. And now these people, these Jews who have been fed by Jesus as he did that feeding of the over 5,000, probably 15,000 people that day, have come and they found Jesus and they're wondering, how did you get here, Jesus? I mean, we saw your disciples leave in a boat, but you don't have a boat. And who's ever heard of anyone walking on water, right? Which reminds me of a story. There was a little boy named Billy and he was told that when his father and his grandfather turned 13, that they actually walked on Mirror Lake. Well, Billy was coming on his 13th birthday, and sure enough, he turned 13 and decided that, well, it was a family tradition that he too would walk on Mirror Lake, just like his father and grandfather did. So he got into a boat and got about halfway out there, and he decided it was time to to put to the test. And so he, he took one step, and sure enough, he sank to the very bottom of the lake. Well, he swam up and went home very frustrated and wet, soaking, and he asked his grandmother, Grandmommy, you told me that Well, when my father and my grandfather turned 13, that they were able to walk on Mirror Lake. Well, today is my 13th birthday, and I too tried to walk on Mirror Lake, but I sank to the very bottom. What's going on? And his grandmother smiled and said, well, yes, Billy, but your grandfather and father were born in January, (laughs) and you're born in July, so that's why you can't walk on Mirror Lake. Who's ever heard of anyone walking on water, right? That's what the people are wondering. How did you get here, Jesus? Rabbi? Tell us, as we continue to read. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father, has set his seal. Now in ancient times, a king would often have a signet ring that he would use to place his seal on a message that was sent so that someone would know that this message has the king's seal of approval. And Jesus is letting the crowds know that he has our heavenly father's seal of approval. And, and, just, and as, the, as, as, uh, as we read in John chapter three, we know that Jesus has the seal of approval because he is God's one and only begotten son 
And as we learned in the very beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So Jesus is fully God and fully man, God incarnate, so that if we want to know what, what God would have us do, we, we simply look to Jesus and we listen to his words, and what is he telling the crowd this day? He says, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you were full of, full of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Don't go chasing after this temporal food. Don't labor so hard for food that won't really last. Yes, this food that I've given you satisfied you for a moment. Look, now you're here, you're, you're still hungry again. Go after that food that lasts for eternity. So how do we get this food that Jesus is talking about? Let's keep reading. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, don't labor for food that will not last, but for food that endures to eternal life. As the faithful Jews, these crowd then asks Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? Now as Jews living in the first century, their faith was really all about doing. Did you know that there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Commandments that tell Jews what not to do and, and what they should do, you know? Like to honor the Sabbath, that's a, that's a command that they should do. And, and they shouldn't have idols, that's something they shouldn't do. And, and they shouldn't, you know, co- commit adultery. And they, they shouldn't steal. And, and they should, you know, love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Those are the things they were being told what to do. In fact, there were 613 commandments telling them what to do so that their faith was all about doing. And so they thought that they were something they needed to do to do the work of God. So what, they naturally asked Jesus, what must we do? And as Americans, it's not unusual for us to probably ask that same question. After all, in our society today, we're measured mostly by what we do, are we not? Did we reach our sales quota? If we did, then we'll get a raise. Did our company stock price go up? If we did, we may get promoted. Did we, did we um, increase our net income for the year? If so, we will certainly get a raise. In America, we're rewarded by what we do. We're measured by what we do. This begins at a very early age. If we make all A's, we make the honor roll. If we perform well on the athletic field, we will certainly start the next game. You know, if if we make a good high enough score in the SAT, then we can get into our our dream college. Our life today, we're measured by what we do. And we can make the same mistake when it comes to faith. We can think there's something we have to do to do the works of God. But Jesus, in our text helps us see in John 6, verse 29, that it's not about what we do, it's about what we believe. This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. The work of God begins first with belief. Saving faith will certainly lead to action, but first we've gotta believe. It's not about doing, it's about believing, for we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. As we continue to read John's gospel, we will see that our salvation is not a result of what we do, but rather what Jesus has done for us. For he lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, then he died as the perfect sacrifice on a cross. And that's why in John chapter 9, verse 30, the very final words of Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. There's nothing more we need to do. We simply believe and accept this great gift. There's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore 
Because God has shown us the full extent of his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We simply receive this gift through faith. Notice again, let's look at John 6, verse 29 again. Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He doesn't say this is the work of man that you believe in God whom he has sent. This is the work of God. God is always working around us, helping us see who he is, helping us understand just how much he loves us. You know, it's interesting. uh, People today would say, well, if I just had a sign, then I would believe. But have you looked at the sunrise? Have you looked at the sunset? Have you considered all that is necessary in order to have life on this planet? Scientists and uh, astronomers and physicists and cosmologists tell us that the the earth has to be a a certain distance from the sun in order to have life on this planet, that we have to have a certain amount of oxygen, a certain amount of carbon, and a certain amount of water in order for life to exist on this planet. And all these things just happen to happen here on this planet for us to have life. Even the greatest astronomers and physicists and cosmologists are beginning to realize that something else must be at play here. The probability of life just happening on this earth, it's not possible. Yes, someone must be at work. God is always giving us a sign if we'll simply pay attention. And the work of God, God is working so that we might believe, so that our eyes might be open to who God is. Paul writes about this in Romans 1, that because of his creation, humanity was without excuse. God has made himself known through his creation so if you have a friend or a loved one or a coworker or a neighbor who, who maybe is far from God, who doesn't yet know God, begin to pray that God might begin to do a work in their heart. For as we continue to read John's gospel, we're gonna see that Jesus reminds his disciples in John 15, I chose you, you didn't choose me. God has made himself known by the power of his Holy Spirit to his disciples and to all of us here today. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So if we have someone who's far from faith, we need to pray that God would, would do his work so they might see and they might believe. Wondering what it is Jesus says, the crowd then turns to him and says in John 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Are you kidding me? He just fed them with five five barley loaves and two fish, over 15,000 people. He just walked on water. In John 2, he turns water into wine. In John 5, he allows a lame man to walk. Have they not been paying attention? How often can we miss the signs of God in our life? How often do we pray for a miraculous healing for someone or we we pray that something might happen and it does and we move on to the next thing, worrying and wondering whether or not God will be faithful again. Why don't they see the clear signs that Jesus has been giving them? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Come on, Jesus, pull, do what Moses did. I know you just fed 15,000 people, but Moses, you know, he fed hundreds of thousands of people every day. Come on, Jesus, do us another miracle. And notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread Always, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Notice that he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. It's a work of God that leads us to come to Jesus. We need to pray for those who are far from God. The Father might bring them to his Son, that God might, by his Holy Spirit, move, that their eyes might be opened, that they might see the signs of who Jesus really is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does Jesus mean when he says he's the bread of life exactly? That's quite the description. I am the bread of life. Well, unlike today, bread was the staple of every diet in ancient Palestine. They ate bread with almost every meal. Do you remember the old food pyramid? I think we've got a picture of the old food pyramid. Remember, this is what I saw in the 70s and 80s. Of course, now with the Atkins diet and keto diet, maybe it's something different. But back then, it was 40% of your diet was supposed to be bread, you know, carbs. And, and I kind of wonder, you know, if Jesus were here today with the advent of the Atkins diet and the keto diet that emphasizes meats and proteins and, and less carbs because people who want to lose weight think, you know, carbs adds on the calories and the pounds, that maybe Jesus would say, I'm the meat of the world. Or would he? After all, when someone wants to run a race, do they load up on meat or do they load up on carbs? If you're going to run a marathon, I wouldn't recommend you eat a bunch of meat the night before. I'd recommend you eat a lot of pasta, carbs, because in order to have the strength you're gonna need for that long journey, that 26 miles you're running a marathon, you're gonna need the simple sugars of carbs to break down to give you the energy you need to run that race. And isn't the journey of faith more like a marathon rather than a short sprint. As Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What do we hunger for? What do we thirst for today? Now every day we do hunger and thirst for food, absolutely. But the truth is we hunger for other things as well, do we not? As children, and even sometimes as adults, we often hunger for recognition. You know, when you're a little child, you want to perform for everyone to see, receive their accolades. We want to receive the notice of others and be appreciated, know that what we did was, was appreciated and done well. We look for others to validate us, don't we? We hunger for validation. As youth, we often hunger for peer approval. We want to know that we are liked by our friends, that we're popular. We can put a lot of stock in what other people think of us. Yes, we hunger for approval. Of course, young women today feel the pressure to, well, to, to, to win the approval of men, and so they, they hunger for beauty, spending all kinds of money to, to look a certain way, to, uh, even to going as far as to, to have plastic surgery, to, to enhance this or to tuck that. Women will go to extremes to, to look a certain way because that's what our culture says is beautiful. And young men hunger for 
success on the athletic field. You know, sometimes they'll even do performance-enhancing drugs to be successful. We go to great lengths to receive the accolades of others because we hunger for, we hunger for approval. We want to know that we have what it takes, that others like us. Because in our culture today, people hunger for success, for acceptance, approval, recognition. We hunger for a lot of things. But do these things really last? Growing up in uh, Midland in the 70s and 80s, I played a lot of sports, not because I was super athletic, but because there's not much more to do in Midland, Texas. So I played a lot of sports, and I was blessed to be on some really good teams. In fact, I was on a championship team for soccer, football, basketball, and baseball. And so I had a lot of trophies back home. They're still collecting dust, and my mom tells me I need to take them, and I'm not quite ready to throw them away. I probably should, because there's really no use for them now. Uh, But the fact is that you would win a championship, and it would feel great that day, but then there was always next season and a new opponent, and the accolades of the past don't really mean much, do they? I remember when I was working for Price Waterhouse as a consultant, and I was there during the technology boom when, man, money was flowing in a big way, and every year I got promoted, and every year I got an even bigger raise, and I was making more and more money every year that I was there, but I wouldn't find myself any happier just simply based on the money that I made. You know, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the history of the world, who at the height of his wealth, his assets equaled 1% of the U.S. economy. To adjust that for inflation today, his wealth would be worth $350 billion, $350 billion, amazing. He's voted often as, viewed as the wealthiest man in the history of the world. Rockefeller once was asked, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. We never seen to have enough. In fact, Adam Smith, the father of economics, that's one of the underlying law of economics, is that human wants are unlimited. We never seem to have enough. Our, our temporal needs never seem to be fully satisfied because I think we're looking for our eternal need to be satisfied by temporal things. Jesus says in our text, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says this because only he can fulfill our deepest hunger, our deepest need, our eternal need for love. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for recognition. We're looking for success. Ultimately, what we really need is love. You think I think Jesus came to this earth not so much to bring loaves, but to bring love. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't come to this earth simply to to bring loaves, but ultimately to bring love. As we continue reading John's gospel, John chapter 6, we'll see in John 6 verse 51 that this loaf points to his love. For he goes on to explain to them that, well, that this bread that I give to you is going to be my flesh, and this will give you eternal life. Yes, this loaf at this table, and I've actually used uh, not unleavened bread because that's what they served. It's Passover week, and this is Passover. John 6, if you read it, this is during the season of Passover that he's given this speech about being the bread of life. How appropriate for a crowd who, who always came to Passover to be reminded of, of God's provision for them in the past and how God provided manna every day for them to eat, but it was temporal manna. It wouldn't last. No, they would continue to hunger the very next day. No, Jesus says, I am the bread of life who's come down from heaven so that you'll never hunger nor thirst again, that you'll find what you really need ultimately in me. 
You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to be my disciple. Of course, if you keep reading John 6, you'll see that people read that and they go, well, how is that possible? It's cannibalism. Who who could possibly eat of his flesh and and drink of his blood? And, And many people scatter, but not the disciples. They're still there. And they ask, well, what about you? And they say, well, you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. We know that you are the bread of life because the disciples have opened their heart to Jesus and they've been walking with him and they've seen what he's done and they've seen and heard all that he has said. He's done the signs that they needed. And they recognize that he's come to bring us eternal bread, eternal life, if we will simply turn to him. Yes, Jesus didn't come to this earth to bring loaves, but love. And this loaf points to the great love he has for all of us, an unconditional, sacrificial love. For every time we come to this table, we remind ourselves that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As Jesus goes on to explain in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends. This body, this bread reminds us of God's love for us. And there is no greater love. You know, the next time we find ourselves feeling anxious about tomorrow, wondering what the future holds, we need to be mindful of the one who holds the future. That Jesus, who is without sin, has paid the price for our sins. And then he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. As he reminds us in verse 40 of our text, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of on, on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Yes, this bread reminds us of God's love for us, reminds us of His sacrifice for us, reminds us that our sins have been atoned for, and on the third day He rose again, and He will raise us up on the last day. So no matter what happens today or tomorrow, He is with us, and He will raise us up on the last day. It's when we are grounded in the love of Jesus and we feast on his love every day, we can freely love others regardless of whether or not they love us. We're not worried about man's approval because we are filled with God's amazing love and approval. When we are grounded in the unconditional love of Jesus, we don't live our lives seeking the love and approval of others because we know that we are already loved eternally by God and there is no greater love than his love, when we are grounded in the unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus, then what title or position we have on this earth really doesn't matter in view of eternity because we know that Jesus loves us whether we're the CEO or the summer intern. He loves us all the same. There's nothing we can do to make him love us anymore. He's already shown us how much he loves us by giving his own body for our sins. The next time someone says something to us that we find upsetting or harmful, let's remember the bread that Jesus came to bring. And this is bread is not really about bread. It's about his love. For his body was given for us. His blood was shed for us. The next time we find ourselves afraid and worried, let's remember what Jesus says in the the last verse of our text. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came not to give a temple bread, but an eternal bread. He came to give himself so that we might all be saved and he might raise us up on the last day. 
Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the bread of life, Lord Jesus. And as great as it was that you provided manna from heaven while Moses led the people of Israel, that was only bread for the people of Israel. But as Jesus said, has he's the true bread from heaven that comes to feed the whole world with a food that will never perish but last for all eternity. And this food, this bread, ultimately points to your love for us. So Lord, every day may we be ever mindful of your love for us. May we remember your body was given for us. May we remember the bread that you are, the true bread from heaven that has come to nourish us and to sustain us for the long journey of faith that lies ahead. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people.